When you need mealtime inspiration, it's worth Shopping Kroger, where you'll find over 30,000 mouth-watering choices that excite your inner foodie. And no matter what tasty choice you make, you'll enjoy our everyday low prices, plus extra ways to save, like digital coupons worth over $600 each week. You can also save up to $1 off per gallon at the pump with fuel points. More savings and more inspiring flavors make Shopping Kroger worth it every time. Kroger, fresh for everyone. Fuel restrictions apply. This is Pop Culture Confidential, and I'm Christina Yerling Biru. Hey everyone, thanks for joining me. I'm excited to bring you this conversation with a real master of his craft, award-winning casting director John Papsidera. The multi-talented Papsidera is a trained actor, an art gallerist, and has a decades-long career as one of Hollywood's foremost casting directors. His films include Jurassic World, Suicide Squad, TV series such as Westworld, The Offer, Wednesday, and Yellowstone, and of course, a long collaboration with director Christopher Nolan. Papsidera has cast most of his films, from Memento, The Dark Knight Trilogy, Interstellar, Inception, Dunkirk, and of course, his latest, Oppenheimer. In our conversation, we talk about what went into assembling that incredible cast for Oppenheimer that just this week passed a whopping $700 million at the global box office. We talk about his collaboration with Nolan, what it entails to cast a biopic, pivotal readings he's had with actors, casting the likes of Charlize Theron, Heath Ledger as the Joker, his thoughts on AI and the strikes, and so much more. John Papsidera, thank you so much for joining me. You're welcome. It's a pleasure to be here. Prior to Oppenheimer, I had a few images of the real Robert J. Oppenheimer in my consciousness, you know, as you do with a historical figure. One was the very intense close-up of that CBS interview he did sometime in 1965 when he said, now I become death at Bhagavad Gita, quotes in black and white. And the other was the cover of American Prometheus. Both of them very focused on his eyes, close up, the stare. There was a lot of ambiguity and and guilt sort of in in what you could see. And then when I saw the casting announcement, remember, I remember thinking, wow, Killian, that's perfect. How did you arrive at him? Well, I mean, look, we've had a relationship and I refer to Chris as we, uh, Christopher Nolan. Uh, We've had a relationship with Killian for a lot of years. Um, Always been huge fans and knew how talented and special he was. And um, when I first met with Chris about uh, Oppenheimer, I sat down and he said, um, you know, do you want to talk about ideas for Oppenheimer? And I brought up some of the usual suspects. And he said, um, you know, I've been staring at that picture on American Prometheus. And he said, um, I think it's Killian. And I said, well, I mean, Killian would be phenomenal. You know, he's not as tall as Oppenheimer was, but um, regardless, you know, Tom Hardy was not as tall as uh, What's-His-Face was supposed to be in Dark Knight Rises, Bane. Um, but um, but I said, you know, Killian is absolutely amazing. And um, and I think we both felt, too, Killian had um, been in so many of the films 
that it was, you know, it was high time that he took center stage and won. And it just seemed like a, a perfect opportunity. So um, Chris initially brought it up uh, when we started talking about ideas and I couldn't have been more pleased. At one point you were thinking of him as Batman. Yeah, he yeah. tested Batman. The, the five actors, Killian tested, uh, he was one of them. And uh, and we loved his read um, uh, and loved his work, uh, but it just didn't feel like it was the right fit for Batman. The, he did get the right fit, though, in your movie. He did. He got the scarecrow. <laughs> right. We kept a bag over his head and gave him the scarecrow. <laughs> <laughs> um, but going back to Oppenheimer... When casting for a biopic and looking for mm. actors with real counterparts, tell me a little bit about how that process is unique and different. Well, I think it's different um, for every for every project. You know, depending on the producers, depending on the studio, pretend uh, you know, um, depending on the uh, director. Um, and you know, I had done the offer for Paramount, um, and which is the uh, Godfather. Right, the remaking of the, the Godfather. Making of the Godfather, um, and you know their their perspective was different than necessarily Oppenheimer's. You know, um, both looking for real people, um, uh, but uh, in Oppenheimer, I think the biggest thing was Chris and I talked about the idea of for these roles. He really wanted people to bring a gravitas for these roles. I mean, there was a, a dual purpose in why we cast so many celebrity or stars, you know, actors, um, name actors. And part of it, and the, the, the very first idea was we need to represent these people and give them respect that they des they deserved and garnered in that actual period. They were the rock stars of the, you know, of the uh, scientific world, uh, Oppenheimer being certainly the biggest of them. But all of them, we felt like out of respect, we need to cast actors that are of the same kind of um, visibility and weight as these people had in their time. So that was first and foremost. And then, you know, secondly, Chris also was quite aware as we all were, that we're doing a three-hour movie about a scientist and we're competing with Marvel movies. You know, mm -hmm. I mean, that's right. the end of reality. So we did want to stack the deck uh, in a way as well, just to try and garner as many eyeballs and compete with what the market looks like, you know, these days in um, in feature films and theatrical releases. And for people who listening who don't know, for someone like Matt Damon, does he yeah. read or do you just call him no. and offer it? No, there's nothing yeah. of that. <laughs> uh, no, we had worked with Matt in Interstellar. So um, and, you know, and he had expressed an interest in working with Chris uh, again. So um, it was, you know, we we reached out to Matt and uh, no, those Matt and Robert and Rami and um, a lot of those Ken Brana was a phone Paul, but most of them, Robert Downey Jr., they just met with Chris. Mm -hmm. um, that's usually the process for the most part in large roles. Um, we'll talk about it and talk through ideas that we like. And once we center on one and Chris decides uh, if he'd like to meet them, then they usually either in some combination, either read the script first and then sit and talk to him about it afterwards or vice versa. He will talk to them and pitch them 
the ideas that he's thinking about, and then they'll read a script. So one or the other, and that's usually done, you know, in private at his uh, at his compound or some version thereof. And then we try and make deals with them. How important is actual physical likeness? It is. I mean, but, but case in point, the offer was incredibly important because those were such visible people. You know, mm-hmm. um, uh, you're trying to cast Ally McGraw. You want somebody that kind of looks like Ally McGraw or, you know, Bob Evans or whatever. Um, th- but beyond that, Oppenheimer, we weren't saddled with the idea that all these people were incredibly well known. But again, kind of out of respect to them, um, we tried to stay as true as we could with looks and and essences of people. Um, obviously, intelligence was really important for these people to convey a sense of intelligence. Also, nationalities and accents were really important to us. So, you know, if they were Hungarian, we were looking for Hungarian actors or people that brought authentic sounds to the script um, and into the world of that scientific community, which was incredibly varied, you know, all the way from Fermi being Italian to, you know, Oppenheimer being American. Like there was a, a, a quite an eclectic mix of, of uh, scientists that we tried to be as faithful as we could to. One of the things I've read that you've said a few times and, and I can really see in your work is that you're looking for the soul of mm. a person more than... Yeah anything else and and yeah. i thought of that later when i was thinking about talking to safty as edward teller well, i thought that was the absolute perfect casting because he has both a very interesting appearance but he has yeah. this ambiguity to him which you feel in this person he teller was completely new to me yeah tell me a little bit about finding someone like that well chris is a fan of the softy brothers and um and he he did mention to me, I, I don't know, I thought about uh, Benny Softy. I don't know, what do you think of that? And I said, look, he's fantastic. Um, and I think the the reality was, that, again, he kind of looked like Teller. Um, and, um, you know, and in fact, I, I heard something afterwards, after we cast uh, uh, Benny, was that his... Chris had had a conversation with him eventually and said, let your eyebrows grow. I want them to go crazy uh, (laughs) because Teller had crazy kind of eyebrows. So um, and it's such an iconic look. I mean, it's one of my favorite shots in the film when he said, oh, yeah, yeah. yeah, And the and the, the sunscreen on his face. Um, which was all true. You know, they put zinc oxide on their face and sat there and watched it. Um, so uh, you know, and and I love the fact that, you know, also it's a little bit left of center, um, you know, like right. it it was an unexpected move uh, in casting to to use him as teller, um, not, you know, a normal suspect that, you know, the usual suspects that you would consider. And another one I thought was amazing was the casting of Josh Hartnett as mm. Ernst Lawrence, right? Yeah. yeah, yeah, yeah. Yeah, as Lawrence. Yeah, he was great. I mean, you know... <clears throat> funny because uh historically we don't go back to people that uh don't say yes the first time um Uh in casting and josh was one of those that didn't say yes uh we uh had chris had met with him uh, regarding batman and uh and he didn't see it for himself and usually that's the uh death nail but um but in this case you know um lawrence was kind of a 
American movie star of that world. And um, and Josh aligned with that so perfectly, um, both physically and just his Americana kind of feel and vibe and, and essence that um, we circled back and uh, and made an exception to that rule and wanted to see a bit. Oh, Josh has also been quoted in in articles saying that he regretted passing on Batman or that wow. he had, you know, <laughs> yeah, he had regrets think. about it. So um, uh, we, um, yeah, we circled back and, uh, and I have to say, Josh um, jumped through a lot of hoops to make that work. And so I, I'm indebted and grateful that he did. It took me a while to see that it was him. It's so funny. A lot of people have said that about um, uh, characters in the movie, that they didn't recognize them at first, mm -hmm. um, which I think is a, an absolute credit to the actor. You know, I mean, to be able to like Gary Oldman as Truman, that's one of my favorite pieces. Um, so many people didn't realize that was Gary that I'd spoken to. And um, everything from the accent to the lips to all of it was just kind of brilliant. Mm -hmm. uh, so, you know, it was another turn uh, that I really loved. Well, with, with someone like Gary Oldman and the cast that you have, I mean, you're going to get that. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. And Robert, the same. My wife had said to me that she didn't even recognize that it was Robert initially um, uh, until, you know, moments into it and then went, oh, my God, that's Robert Downey Jr. So, you know, um, I, I think a lot of people kind of did that. And uh, I, I commend them and, and Chris for capturing that, you know. In general, when you get a script from Chris or from someone else um, mm. do, and you read it, do names and people start popping into your head? What's your process when you're reading? I try not to, you know, a lot of people and once in a while it will happen, you know, um, somebody kind of undeniable is in your head and you start reading it that way. But I really, you know, a lot of people have said, ask me that and or um, do you have a favorite actor? And, you know, my response is I have to have 350 favorite actors, you know, in that my job is to provide options, not to be locked into one choice. So while th some things are undeniable or you feel that initially, um, there's a myriad of reasons why it might not work out that way. So I try and read a script without any real visuals in my head. Um, and, um, and then we'll circle back before I meet with the director or producers um, to then try and explore what the possibilities of that character are. Um, and, and so much of it goes into you have to have the understandings of what your budget limitations are, what the studio is going to require for names, not names to publicize the project. So a lot of the, those kind of background issues come into when you're starting to think creatively about roles. And you have to tick all those boxes in your head. I mean, anybody just write down, you know, Leonardo DiCaprio and Meryl Streep for every role. Um, <laughs> but, you know, they don't fit that always. And two, it's not always realistic. So I like to have as many options as I can um, uh, in order to not only creatively fulfill what a director is looking for, but all the other people that, you know, are, are relying on a cast to um, fulfill their dreams and needs as well. Did you have any options that you're at liberty to say for Oppenheimer that didn't turn um, out? I mean, there's one that really, you know, kind of sticks in my mind. Um, 
which I don't know if I'll say or not, but I, you know, I tend to say things that I shouldn't. Um, <laughs> yeah, we um, we had had discussions with uh, John C. Riley for a role, and um, and he was supposed to meet with Chris, and ultimately that didn't happen um, through a lot of different reasons. He didn't really want to read the script, and it was too long, and it was you know uh, a big time commitment, and a lot of things came up there. But um, so you know there are those things in every project that you know you hit a bump in the road or a speed bump. It always feels bigger with Chris. Um, in in so far as you know, I like to say to him, okay, well um, after I read a script who do you want? Because it's good to be king, you know, and, um, and, you know, more often than not, we are um, uh, blessed with a, uh, uh, you know, a large variety of people putting their hands up. I'm talking a little bit about the process where you're actually reading with mm. actors. You are a trained actor yourself. So yeah. you, I'm, I suppose this must be good for you in that, in terms of getting someone, yeah. an actor to feel very, relaxed and, and yeah. you know what they're going through what are you looking for do you want them to be in character what kind of preparation um i think it again it, it depends on really what you're doing you know if you're doing a comedy you want people to find the joke you know you want people to be inventive i think if there's one common denominator for me um you know choices an actor makes separates the wheat from the chaff every time Plenty of people come in and, and you know, um, the majority of actors will come in and um, and read the read the scene. Um, and that's what you get, you know, um, but the the really special actors will come in and make choices that surprise you that you didn't uh, think of when you saw it, that makes a different interpretation of a line. Um, uh, whatever that is, it comes down to choices. I, I, I've used this example before, but uh, I did a film and uh, God love her soul. And Haish came in to read after every um, girl in Hollywood, a lot of girls in Hollywood had read for this project that I did um, uh, years ago. And the scene was a secretary taking notes and uh, dictation from uh, John Goodman's character in a movie called Kingfish. Mm -hmm. And um, everybody came in with some version either of a, a steno pad and a pencil where they're taking notes, or they come in with, you know, pretending like they're typing on a, on a you know, typewriter. And, um, and Anne Heche made the choice to come in and just sit and listen to him. And when he got done with the dictation, got up and walked out. And then she came back in the scene with the typewritten letter. And that I still get chills that that her choice was she was smart enough to remember the entire letter and get it letter perfect. And that assumption of the intelligence of that character was like, oh, my God, that's wow. the that's the brilliance of it. So you look for people that make great choices. And I say to actors, it doesn't have to be as dramatic as that, but it should be something that you're imbuing your own special imprint on your interpretation of it, you know, because look in film 90% of the time, people are playing some version of themselves, right? We're hiring them to look like they do sound like they do walk like they do. That is, you know, the, the large part of it. 
The other 10% is creativity and genius and inspiration and magic and all those other things. So you're looking for people to find those moments, at least I do, that then separate them out from everybody else. There's a wonderful example there with, with Anne Heche. Is there someone else through all your decades of work that's read for you that we didn't know of, but that just I mean, you know, blew certain, your mind so much. I mean, Charlize was that, you know, uh, I, I put Charlize in her first movie, Two Days in the Valley. And, you know, it's the other thing where, you know, casting directors and or directors mostly like to claim that they discovered someone, mm -hmm. you know, and, and I stay away from that language because the reality is, is that it is a creative process. And I never would have read Charlize had a manager by the name of John Crosby called me and said, um, hey, I know you're looking for a, a tall Nordic girl. I just met this girl in the bank in the line waiting for a teller. She's tall and beautiful and South African. Would you read her? And I said, yeah, absolutely. So it's about being open to those creative ideas, trusting what people suggest to you and that all comes from agents and managers most of the time that you work hand in hand with. And over the years, you begin to trust people where they, you know, have not led you astray in the past. And those were one of those moments. So, yeah, I mean, you go back and, and look through almost every movie. It happens if you have the trust and the director and producers and the studio have the faith that magic happens, it, it always shows up in one way or another. Um, and, um, and so I try and believe in fate and, uh, and faith, have faith in that as much as possible. Kelly Riley was certainly not new, but the mm -hmm. fact that you cast her in yeah. the role that she has in, in Yellowstone, is, Yellowstone is pretty amazing. Yeah. I mean, you know, uh, when Taylor first brought that up to me and we were talking about um, uh, prototypes, he didn't know Kelly. Um, but I, you know, you wanted somebody that could be smart and ballsy and irreverent and, um, and Kelly always struck me as that. I mean, you know, she was an actress that would take chances and, you know, there was a handful of girls that we sent the script to, um, and, you know, Kelly was really one of the first ones that raised her hand and said, let me talk to Taylor that she just got it. Mm -hmm. And um, and moved quick enough that the other girls were, um, you know, kind of left out to dry. But, um, yeah, you know, again, those things happen and you just go, I'm glad I had that idea, but I'm also glad that it worked and, it, and, and she's magnificent in that role. You do a lot of project with so many people, um, big mm. casts, and I'm thinking like a fictional families like that. I mean, are you looking for likeness there? No, not necessarily. I mean, I think, you know, again, it comes down to what you need and what the producers expect and what the studio mm -hmm. expects on some level. So, I, you know, I usually try to take veer away from all star casting. You know, where every face is somebody, you know, kind of, you know, um, instance, which, you know, Chris and I talked about uh, and Emma as well. Chris's producer and wife talked about that, that you didn't want to get pulled out of the movie, you know, and there's plenty of examples where you just go, what? Why is you're that just thinking there? You yeah, can just see that totally. actor all the time when you're watching yeah. it. 
Yeah, and you, and it, and it bothers for me. Really pulls me out of the moment of watching a film, and I think for a lot of people it does. You're thinking of them as the as an actor, not as the character, and um, and so I thought we walked that tight that tightrope. Um, I hope really well in Oppenheimer because I didn't have any of those moments no. of getting pulled out, and I think we did stack the deck as best we could. As I said, it took me a while to even realize that it was this huge actor in several. Yeah, years. yeah, 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 yeah. And another thing that that you're exceptional at that you know, that we laymen aren't, that is sort of casting against type, that after we've seen that actor in that role, we're like, well, there could have been no other one. Mm -hmm. To get to that, how often do you like cast against type and think, yeah, this will work? It seems it wouldn't, but it does. Yeah. I mean, you try to, and I think, you know, you try and think, I try and get inside of an actor's mind um, and figure out why they would want to do a role. And, you know, and and other than working with a director, it being a great role, what else do they have to show? So you look for other sides of, of actors. I mean, you know, human beings are incredibly complex and um, multifaceted. And usually you, you get that through an actor's work, looking at their work over time. Or for me, I really get that when I sit and talk to someone and why I value interviews and just meeting actors so much is that you get, you know, you, I'll bring up, you know, what kind of family did you have? What was your relationship with your brother or your sister or your, your mother or your father? You get all these different aspects to a person that you don't get just watching their work. Mm -hmm. And, and any of those clues could lead you to believe and or make up that they have a, a bit of a character within them, you know, um, and so that's what I kind of look for. And that's what I kind of enjoy doing is, is, you know, mining actors for the possibilities. Um, and then your imagination takes over and, you know, hopefully theirs does and, um, and it, and it aligns, you know, but that's, that's kind of what you're looking for. I want to ask you about Heath Ledger. Mm. Ooh, amazing. Yeah. What was the process that didn't seem like something that was absolutely certain. No, that he not would at all. Be the Joker. Yeah. How did that happen? Um, um, you know, we met. Well, we pursued three people uh, for the Joker. Um, one was Leonardo. Mm -hmm. um, we never heard back. Number two was uh, Joaquin Phoenix. Joaquin sat with Chris and explained to him why he didn't want to play the Joker and that he didn't like big um, action or big Hollywood movies. Um, and then he wanted a more independent career, which I find fascinating that he ultimately turns yeah, around and plays the Joker and wins an Oscar. Um, but, um, you know, that's just one of those antidotes as you go. That's wild. Um, and the third was Heath. And, um, you know, both Chris and I responded to the fact that Keith saw it like Chris did, that, you know, he was much more attuned to Malcolm McDowell in, just in my head, in... Uh, oh, in Kubrick? Yeah, yeah, yeah. Clockwork Orange. Clockwork Orange, that He was in mm -hmm. a Clockwork Orange than he was Jack Nicholson in, you know, the Batman films. I think a lot of people worried about stepping into Nicholson's shoes, doing that role. But, you know, really that character and as Chris conceived it, he was an anarchist. 
He just wanted anarchy. He just wanted to, to tear it all down. And um, and Heath clued into that. And he and Chris talked about that. And, um, you know, uh, film history pursued, you know, yeah. uh, ended up. I mean, he was absolutely brilliant in that role. The reactions just for the casting announcement were very different from after yeah. everyone actually had seen yeah. it, which is... Right. And Heath hadn't shown that side of himself, you know, and... Um, and, you know, it was a phenomenally exciting prospect when we did it. And then afterwards, it's like, oh, yeah, we we looked like geniuses, but really it was Heath's genius that pulled that off. You worked with James Gunn as well. Yes. How would you say his process in these type of movies is to Nolan's? Incredibly different. Incredibly mm-hmm. different. You know, um, when I read Chris's scripts, and and I'm uh, gratefully one of the first people that read a new script that he does, um, I'll go to his house and we'll, I'll sit alone in a room and read it, and uh, and then sit with him and talk afterwards. But what you realize is that 99.9 percent of what's on the page is what will be in the film. Chris has already had the entire film planned out in his head. And so it's much more like puzzle making um, uh, and doing with Chris in that I just need an actor to do how to play the role as Chris sees it. It's like a fine switch Swiss watch. And I need that little part to do what he wants him to do. It's not about an exploration necessarily of what what else can you bring and, you know, those conversations happen with him for lead roles, but everybody else really needs to fit their part uh, in telling the story. And James is much more emotional about things. It's, um, you know, he will have concepts and he will have ideas in his head, um, but it's much more an emotional journey of um, what James likes, what he responds to, humor is a huge part of what he looks for in in actors and somebody that can pull that off. Whereas, you know, I mean, I think the only bit of humor in Oppenheimer really is Matt Damon, which is part of the reason why we wanted Matt to play that role. There's a dry sense of humor that, you know, casually Matt can do incredibly well. And um, and so it doesn't come, you know, there's not a lot of laughs in, in Interstellar or, you know, uh, Inception. It's much more of a different kind of vein that you're looking for in actors to bring believability. Whereas James, you need humor and believability and intelligence. It's it's just a different mix. And what he responds to is incredibly um, uh, uh, spontaneous at times rather than, than um, you know, intellectually you know um thought about i wanted to ask you a bit about things that we're talking a lot about in the strikes for example ai Mm. how do you feel about that in terms of your art um i'm not thrilled with it you know i don't uh it concerns me um you know i think what we do is deal and you were kind enough to say in the beginning about me matching souls to roles that are two-dimensional so much of it is about the human experience. So much of it is about um, finding the idiosyncratic behavior human beings that shed light on the rest of our lives, you know, as, as a viewer, um, windows into somebody's soul. And when you start to talk about AI, well, that's not a window into anyone's soul. 
it's a window into electronics and to you know um, something scientific and uh, and mechanical, not emotions and human beings. And so I think you know any point for me, the point of art is to move us as human beings, right? It's what we express our way, our, our things through movie theaters in some ways. I make up um, are like, you know, telling stories at campfires for Neanderthals around a, around a fire or the Native American culture. It replaces that lineage of storytelling by, see, by being in a dark room and imagining yourself in another world or in somebody else's shoes. And um, when it turns into a video game or electronics, I think you lose so much of that, you know, um, uh, an amalgamation of people brought together into a, you know, a visual is not the person. It's an amalgamation trick, if you will. Um, so I have a lot of concerns about it. But that being said, we also don't know what the technology is even going to provide. Um, which is why I wish they would put it to the side in these negotiations and get people back to work. I don't think we know what AI is going to be capable of doing and or do. So maybe we should just put it to the side and wait until we have a better idea of what it's actually going to be. If it's just Max Headroom, it's an old reference, um, you know, maybe it's not the same thing that we're that we're all imagining this could be. So um, I think it's an incredibly complex conversation um, and decision um, way over my head, but um, I don't quite know if we know what we're unleashing. Um, you think they should have some unleashing. provisions or something and then just put it to the side? Yeah, I would think so. Like, you know, address it when you can address it. I just don't know that anybody and, and you know, maybe Elon Musk could, maybe, you know, Google could talk about well, what it might do, but we don't know what it might do yet, you know, um, and, and, uh, well, I guess what so I've heard is the sort of the body scanning of the extras yeah, and things like extras, that, yeah. that you have in perpetuity, you could use right. their life. And I think that's a valid thing. Like, you know, maybe you just do that for, you know, you only allow it for one individual project. And it's not in perpetuity and it's not in any you know movie that anybody wants to use it in. I think there's other ways to go about doing that and making a rule about that um, and protections for people right. as opposed to, you know, uh, and, you know, even that it's like not very many. I know Chris wouldn't sign up for it. Not many directors are going to want to use um, AI to fill in their back their 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 you know stand-in players or their their background players um those scenes are incredibly different and i think as a filmmaker every film every frame is a picture right every frame is a piece of your art i don't know that i want to see the same replicated people in every frame of my film it seems very odd and i think it would be an infringement roman gladiators yeah right yeah yeah, I mean, it just seems like an infringement on the creative process, and most directors would probably opt out of that, I would right. think. What about the discussion about, like, Jewish actors playing Jewish roles and things like that that we're also hearing a lot about now? Yeah, I am um, bringing that up because of Superman. No, I... Um, Today it was Maestro. Oh, really? Bradley oh, was Cooper and other things. Yeah, yeah, yeah. 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 Um, I think, um, look, I think 
what I would say is pertaining only to myself. I'm not a reality casting director. I cast actors that are capable of doing the roles. You know, very few actors get the opportunity to play what they are capable of playing. And like I said, most play a version of themselves in different situations. But to erase the fact that you couldn't have someone play what they're capable of playing, I think is insane. Um, I think it is a bit of, um, you know, political correctness that we're in these days. And I think, you know, what you're doing is not everybody is a star, not everybody is an artist. And I know generations of kids are growing up thinking, oh, I want to be a TikTok star. I want to be a this star. I want to be an uh, influencer. Not everybody's built out for that. Not everybody can be an actor. It's an incredibly special profession that requires training and soul. I mean, just if you think about what actors put themselves on the line for every day, going into a room of strangers and exposing your soul, exposing your flaws, exposing your emotions. Not many people do that on a day-to-day -day basis. So the fact is that, you know, you're going to take people that are capable of that and only relegate them to play straight characters because they're straight in real life or gay characters because they're gay in real life or trans or Jewish or, you know, some ethnic quality. Um, uh, it seems to me to be at odds with what the craft of acting is. The craft of acting is make-believe and, um, you know, stretching one piece, one person's persona into a myriad of others and telling a story. So I think it's um I think it's short-sighted and very limiting when people address that. I mean, so um I think it's it, it's difficult, but for me, the answer is not to just cast people because they're that in real life. Is there a debate around Superman? I didn't even know this. No, 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 not <laughs> no. really. Although I did see articles after we cast David Cornsweet that he has, um, uh, I, I believe his grandfather might have been Jewish or something. And so there were some two or three articles about the fact of going into the conspiracy of who wrote and created uh, Superman mm -hmm. um, and the the use of, you know, kind of uh, Israeli sounding names with, you know, the father and the parents and all that kind of stuff, some connection to, you know, being Jewish in that, in that project. Um, you've been very humble through this interview and saying that you know, all casting someone, you know, it's, it's a process and, but mm. I'm going to ask you to not be in here because I want, really want to know who was a couple of examples or one that you're most proud of that you really feel, wow. I made this happen. I, mean, I think, I, I, well, I mean, I think Heath would probably be one of them. Um, you know, the, the problem is, I, I, you know, unbeknownst to you, Christina, I forget most of the films that I've ever done. <laughs> so there, there's, there's so that many. process. When there's 250 projects almost, I'm like, uh, okay, forget that one. Um, but I think, you know, that's certainly, you know, Yellowstone, I'm incredibly, incredibly proud of. I, I really love the offer. So I think, you know, I think different shows for different reasons. And I, and, and I have to say, I think the reality is, for me, um, it's giving actors opportunities and putting them in positions where they can excel. But also what I remember about projects is not 
you know, it's very kind for people to say an agent called me a little bit ago, a couple months ago, and this is on Superman, somebody that got a role. And he called and said, well, you've just changed another actor's life. And I appreciate it. And um, that's kind of an overwhelming statement to hear. And I don't, you know, like, that's sweet of you to say, but she delivered in the moments, not me. Number one, I just saw it in her. Um, and number two, I think the real thing that I that sticks with me is the opportunity to work with the the people, the creative people that I get to again and again and again. You know, um, that's where the real reward is, you know, for me, because that's what I'll remember, those friendships, those personalities, being part of a creative team that put really special projects together um, stays with you a lot longer than the money you get, you know, paid or, you know, credits that accumulate over time. It's about those friendships. And I, I value the fact that I have worked with directors and producers over and over and over again. And, um, and that's humbling to me, you know, that people trust me and trust my taste and, um, and tolerate my personality. <laughs> so what are you working on? Um, let's see. Well, I'm not working on one damn thing right now because of the strike. The strikes, of um, course. But um, I was in the middle of Superman um, uh, with James Gunn. Um, we are in the middle of a project with Taylor Sheridan called Landman, which is a Billy Bob Thornton um, show that uh, we're putting together. Uh, we're in the middle of that. Um, uh, let's see, what the heck else? Oh, Karate Kid we've been working on, the new Karate Kid uh, uh, movie. Um, so, you know, it varies. And then there's all the things that I need to go back to. Uh, mm -hmm. I will go back to The Night Agent once we can, uh, a show that I did for Netflix. Um, we'll go back to um, Yellowstone. We'll uh, we'll go back to things that are uh, that we need to. We we'll go back to um, uh, Lioness for Taylor, the the special ops Lioness. So there's a lot of things that I'm waiting uh, on coming together, continuing work on that I'm excited about that uh, have all been you know hit the pause button for the time being. Let's hope these strikes get resolved as soon as possible. That when that cork explodes, there's going to be so much where well, you guys are going to be swamped. Yeah. I can't even no, imagine no, how you be. start. And, you know, and that's the problem. I mean, you know, everybody will be released from the starting gate at the same time. So you'll be competing not only for the same actors, but the same studios, the same crews that you, you that have to, it'll be incredibly busy. And, and, um, but that's, uh, you know, it's much better than the alternative. I, I worry about my staff. Uh, I work with uh, the moment six or seven incredibly talented people, and I'd love to continue continue working with mm -hmm. them. But it all depends on what happens. You know, the the fallout of uh, these strikes, or you know, or you can't stress enough how many people are affected. You know, I also own a restaurant. You brought up my art gallery. Mm -hmm. Also own a restaurant. You know, all of those industries are affected by the strike in in Hollywood. Um, not just actors, not just casting directors or writers, but waiters and delivery people and grocery stores. And, you know, there's a huge fallout to this work stoppage that um, I hope calmer minds prevail and, and they can find a way through. Well, thank you very much. And and I just want to leave you by saying that I 
cannot wait for there to be a casting Oscar. I can't believe that there isn't one. I've spoken to a few casting directors throughout my history with my show here. And and I just can't keep thinking every year it's going to happen. But I know you've won a lot of casting awards in general, but I mean, this is something that I really hope is going to happen sooner. I do too. I think it's a, it's a real shame. It's a real crime, you know, that um, the casting is not represented uh, by the Academy. Uh, I'm a member of the Academy. I've certainly voted for there to be um, uh, more recognition and have tried to be vocal about it, but you know, it's an essential part, you know, I mean, when I get feisty and why I say people tolerate my personality, I will say things. And, you know, when people tell me, oh, director's too busy on a la- on a, um, a, t- a location scout or he's in a, a wardrobe and makeup thing and you can't get to him or this is a priority. None of those exist without casting, period. You don't have an actor. You're not going to be putting that hat mm-hmm. on, a, on a location set. So, you know, um, it starts and ends with performance and and these people telling a story and being part of it and how that's not recognized as a as a vital crucial part of any creative process is insane and it's it should insane. be corrected yeah it should be corrected and and also i think that it's just in terms of the audience i think casting is something that even laymen really understand you can of really course. see this was a great portrait of this person or this right. was not i didn't like how she did and that. the reason and the reason people go yes to movies i mean yes sure there are the stories like oppenheimer that you know smart people like you have read you know american prometheus or had the book around and are aware of most people are not you know, and so they decide on whether they go to a movie because of the actors in it or the director, you know, in, in some cases, certainly in Chris's case. But it's such an integral part of everything that that shades all of it. I don't care if they're the best special effects in the world. If actors don't convey the truth of those moments, it's wasted. It's mm. useless. And so um, the fact that the the Academy has not voted for a casting director um, award um, is really uh, an injustice to the, you know, myriad of casting directors that have put blood, sweat and tears into their work um, and yet will not be recognized, you know, Um, sadly due to, you know, a lot of directors egos and a lot of producers egos Mm -hmm. Uh, and uh, and, you know, that's a shame and I hope it does change. Oh, I hope so too. I can't wait to see all your other upcoming projects. And thank Thank you you. so much for your time and the amazing work with Oppenheimer, really. Thank you so much. I really appreciate your interest. Thank you. Thank you so much to John Papsidera. Oppenheimer is, of course, in theaters now. And thank you so much for listening to Pop Culture Confidential. Pop Culture Confidential is a part of the Evergreen Podcast Network, and you can find us and subscribe wherever you get your podcasts. Please rate and review the show. It really helps us out. Thank you so much. Don't you know that you're a grown-up? I'm a grown-up. Me too. Yep, me too. But you know, these days, being a grown-up can really suck. Luckily, we're grown-ups who grew up in the coolest generation. We had video arcades. And also some of the best TV and movies ever made. We lived the origin of awesome consumer electronics. The list goes on and on. Yep, Generation X. Exactly. And we're Gen X Grown-Up. Every week, the Gen X Grown-Up podcast explores media, tech, 
toys, games, and more from both yesterday and today. Through the eyes of Generation Xers who absolutely love that stuff. You can find us on iTunes or wherever you get your podcasts. Or find us on our website, GenXGrownUp.com. All right, you think that was good enough? I I hope so, man. I'm tired. (laughs) Who listens to a promo on a podcast and then goes and listens to a different podcast? I've never done it. (laughs) (laughs) No, right.